Or would you grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 6? Exodus chapter 6. This is a, uh, really a foundational text in uh, the book of Exodus and the Old Testament narrative and really the entire story of redemption. Uh, it's not complex, but it is pivotal, really, really, really important. And so we're going to kind of fly over it and dig down into a few different sections. But as we get there, let me ask you the question that uh, comes to me as we listen to Joyce's story. Have you ever been in those places where you feel, as she did, like um, you're kind of insignificant, that you're in the leftover years, you're just kind of do- doing your thing? Do you, do you ever feel when you look around at this massive world that we're in that your tiny little blip of a life doesn't really make that much difference? You ever been in that place where you're just like, like, as, as we talked about the, the wave of worship going all around the globe, it's this beautiful picture, but what we can tend to forget is that there's almost 8 billion people on earth, and you're one of them. I don't even know what one eight billionth looks like, but it's really small, <laughs> like really, really little. Do you ever get to that place where you just think, like, I, I, I'm so small, and my life is so short in the midst of this broad spread of all that's happening, all like what, what can my life do? And then add to that this idea of I'm not as good as this person, or I don't have this skill, or I'm in this phase of life, or I'm in the middle of this, or I have this thing that's, uh, that's a, kind of a besetting sin that's in me. And I, I, all of these things kind of work together, and we get to a place where we just feel like uh, I'm kind of insignificant. I, my, my, my story doesn't really matter. Have you ever been there? It, it's fascinating because we tend to move from that place of insignificance to another pole where we begin to believe a, a, a line of reasoning that most of us have been taught since we were really young, and it goes something like this. You're, you're really important, like really important. Like, like you're a unique snowflake. You are beautiful, and, uh, and, and you're perfect, and everything's really all about you, which is why when people uh, disagree with you, they're wrong because you're right. You know how that goes, right? And, and if, if your needs aren't being met, then it's time for you to go somewhere else and do something else because uh, it all, really is all about you. You're the most important thing in the world. And, um, and you're self-sufficient. You, it actually feels weird to ask somebody to help you because you know you're supposed to be able to do everything yourself and everybody um, is, you're, you're able to kind of handle it all on your own. And so we, we have this weird thing where we swing from insignificance, where we look at 8 billion people in the world and think, I really don't, I, I really don't matter much at all, all the way over to what is uh, described as the modern plague of narcissism, where we're just the center of everything. And we tend to go back and forth between I'm insignificant, I don't matter, to I'm really important and I'm the most important thing in the world. And Exodus chapter 6 is going to tell us a different story. As God always does, he's going to remind us that it's actually not about us at all. That We are significant, but we're not the point. That he loves us, and it's his love that's the centerpiece. In this story, God is going to make seven I will statements. They're statements that declare the way that he's going to interact with us. And they're all about him coming towards us. 
And so I want to ask you to listen, and then we're going to dig into this text as really a centerpiece to the way that God interacts with his people. So Cindy's going to come and uh, read for us, and uh, she's going to read through the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 6. So would you listen to the word of God? Good morning. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to them, to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Thank you, Cindy. So as we look at Exodus 6, I want us to look at three different things within the text. We're going to start with looking at what God does, what what his work is, and the way that he states that to us. Then we're going to look at what we get, because this is a story that is uh, incredible as it relates to the way that God gifts us and the way that God works in us. But then finally, who we are. Are we insignificant? Are we the point? Where, where, where do we fall in between? So what he does, what we get, and who we are. So we need to remember the context. First, we're coming out of Exodus chapter 5. Remember uh, last week we talked about this idea that Moses, called by God, is sent to Pharaoh. Uh, he's expecting that he's going to be able to let the people go, that God's, that God's going to work in Pharaoh's heart and he's going to respond. Pharaoh doesn't, and so uh, they, uh, people immediately kind of lose their hope in God. Their immediate turn is back to Pharaoh. We're, we're your servants. We're following after you. We don't know what's going on with these people. And even, even Moses loses faith. Uh, we, the the, the end of Exodus chapter 5 is Moses saying to God, you've done evil and you've promised redemption for your people, but you haven't done anything. And God's response at the beginning of Exodus 6 is like God always does, comes back to him. Not back to Moses, but back to God. So when Moses feels like he can't do anything, God says it's all about me. 
Now when Moses accuses God as though he's more important than God, God just brings it back to him. God's constantly coming back to himself. And we see it in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, if you look down in your text, you're going to find at the end of verse 8, that same statement, I am the Lord. It's the end of the statement that God starts to make in verse 2. Bible scholars call that an inclusio. That's your impressive word for the day. You can use that this week to impress your friends. It's an inclusio. It's really hard to work into conversation. I've tried. It's really awkward, so maybe not. But anyway, uh, an inclusio, basically what it means is these two statements that bookend in between, all that God's saying is the way that he works that truth out. So he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Here's the way that I am the Lord to you. And so what's he say? Well, um, we're not going to go through all the details. We'll hit a bunch of them in the daily podcast this week as well. But if you go down to verse 6, this is the beginning of those I will statements. And so God says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So the first thing that God says is the way that you'll know that I am the Lord is I'm going to step into your brokenness, into your burden, into your slavery, and I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you. And it's the first time that that word redeem is used as an action of God within the Bible. It's that the, the, the word gael that is talking about the, the redemptive work of God. And when that, is, that word is made into a person, the work of a person, it's goel. And uh, you probably know that term within the idea of a kinsman redeemer. So um, Boaz in the book of Ruth is kind of the typical uh, kinsman redeemer, the one who comes and steps in and saves. So what, what, what's happening here is when God uses that word for the first time in, in Exodus 6, what he's saying is, I'm going to work on behalf of you as as the people. I'm going to step in and I am going to redeem you. Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, talks about this concept of the Goel. He says this, the Goel then was a kinsman who acted as a protector, defender, avenger, or rescuer for the other members of the family, especially in situations of threat, loss, poverty, or injustice. Such, such action would always involve effort, often incurred cost, and sometimes demanded a degree of self-sacrifice. Here's what I want you to see. When God says to the people, I am your redeemer, I will come and redeem you, he's saying, one, I see you in the midst of your threat, your loss, your poverty, and your injustice. I see it. And I am going to step into that situation with my effort, my cost, and my sacrifice. This is God, uh, thousands of years before Jesus, preaching the gospel to the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm going to come and rescue you out of slavery. And we know this because what God's saying over and over again is not just, I'm going to give you political freedom. I'm going to give you the ability to do what you want to do, not under the, the weight of Egyptians anymore. But he actually says to Moses and then to Pharaoh over and over again, uh, let my people go that they may worship me. So there's a worship response. Uh, Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Exodus, says it this way. God is not merely intent on liberating slaves, but on reclaiming worshipers. 
See, see, what God's doing when he says that he's the redeemer is that he's rescuing us not just from political slavery, but he's moving us into the ability to be able to worship freely. Uh, and that's why this is a tie not just to Egypt, but to all slavery, to slavery to sin and bondage to ways of thinking. God's inviting us to not just be released, but to become worshipers. Now, you may say, well, that, that seems kind of self-serving for God to release people so that they may worship him, right? Like, I mean, I guess if any being in the universe is able to be self-focused, it would be God, right? I mean, I guess, I guess that's okay. But like, how, how does that work? Well, could it be that the God of the universe who has made you and made me knows that we always worship? There is no option of not worshiping. You're worshiping all the time, 24 hours a day, every day, you're worshiping. You're worshiping something or someone. And so when God says, I'm releasing my people, I'm redeeming them at my cost, at my effort, I'm going to redeem them so that they may worship me. What he's saying is, I'm giving you an option for the way that you're wired, the way I built you, so that you would worship something that can actually handle the weight of your worship. See, what happens is most of what we worship can't bear the weight of our worship. And so it becomes bondage to us. We worship the stuff around us, and we need more and more and more and more, and it just entraps us. It enslaves us. It never gives us what it promises. And what God says is, I'm going to come and redeem you so that you may worship me. Now, that would be beautiful just by itself. That's the work of God in us. He's coming to redeem us, to rescue us. But, but look at the next verse in verse 7. God says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, um, that, that statement to us sounds like a beautiful promise of God, but to the nation of Israel, to Moses, it would have sounded quite different. It, it would have sounded literally like a marriage proposal. This is God getting down on one knee, as it were, and proposing to Israel. This is the same language that would have been used by a groom-to-be for a bride-to-be. I will be your God and you will be my people. He's, he's coming and he's saying, saying I, I'm inviting you into a relationship that's beyond just this covenant relationship that uh, was from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember from a couple weeks ago, we looked at the idea of circumcision and the way that circumcision brought uh, the people of God into the covenant of God. But now God's taking it a step further and he's literally proposing to his people. What he's saying is, I don't want to just free you. I want to give you myself. I want to be fully yours, and I want you to be fully mine. There's this love relationship thing because God is coming to his people in pursuit of them. God's not waiting for them to come to him. God's coming to Moses and coming to his people and coming to us in pursuit of us. One of the, uh, the questions I get all the time from uh, unbelievers and, and from believers is the uh, question phrased a lot of different ways, but basically, doesn't every road effectively lead to God? Like, does it really matter? Because if we're, if we're pursuing, won't we ultimately get there? And, and I get the heart of the question, but the problem is it's backwards, because what the Bible teaches us is, no, actually none of the roads lead to God, even the road that you're on. 
Like on our own, all of our roads lead to all over the place. <laughs> they never lead to God. We're not seeking him. And none of the people who are going down any of those roads are seeking him. But God is seeking us. See, the heart of the gospel is that God comes our way, not that we go his way and find him. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm coming to you. I'm after you. And in pursuit of them, then look at verse 8. He says one more I will statement. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. We don't have time to do a full theology of the land right now. There's so much that we could talk about within, within that concept. But here, here's what I want you to see. The kingdom is always what theologians call already and not yet. So we heard a little bit in Joyce's story. Joyce experienced in 2018 at two different times the healing touch of God in, in, a, in a way that was profound and not easily medically explainable. God did something in her life. But there's times that God doesn't do that. And there's times that it's not complete. And, and there's times that we wonder why he's not. But we know that there will be a, a not yet, a time coming when all sickness will be gone. And there will be no disease, there will be no brokenness, there will be no sin. We'll be perfectly whole before God. That's the not yet. But now, in the already, we're beginning to experience that in, in moments, in pieces. Well, that's true all across the kingdom. And the land is an already and not yet kind of concept. So we talked about the not yet. We, we, we read scripture from the book of Revelation. We meditated on the beauty of what it looks like around the throne. And, and it, it's, an all, it's an already because it's happening, but it's a not yet for us because we're not yet experiencing the beauty of that. We have to go there in our sanctified imaginations, as David said. There's, a, there's a, um, a, an already but not yet component to it. The land we tend to think of as the not yet. There's going to be a time where God's going to give us heaven and we're going to be with him. And that's beautiful and that's true. That's the hope that we have as a believer. But it's not it. It's, all, it's also the already. See, the land that God gives to us isn't so much a geographical space, but it's the place that God has planted you right now. What, what God says is, I'm giving you not just me, but I'm giving you influence. I'm giving you a space where you can represent me to the world around you. I'm giving you a grounding in your, your neighborhood or in your workplace or uh, in your family or in your friend circle. I'm giving you space and I'm giving you that influence for you to represent me. In fact, there's this beautiful picture. Um, Exodus 6 is like a proposal and Exodus 20 is the marriage ceremony. So in the, the, what we see is the Ten Commandments and the law being given. This is God enacting that covenant. The marriage ceremony between God and his people are hap is happening. A chapter before that in, in Exodus 19, God says to Moses, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. That's really odd because uh, in a little bit, God's going to establish one specific tribe as the priest. But he, he doesn't say that in Exodus 19. He says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. What's he talking about? What do priests do? Priests are the hinge point between God and man. Priests are the place where men come 
and priests bring men before God. And where God comes and speaks to a man, and a priest brings God to man. And what, what God says to Israel is, I'm going to make each one of you a priest. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a space. I'm going to give you influence. I'm going to invite you into my work. I, I'm establishing you. I want to marry you. I want to give you myself. But when I give you myself, I'm giving you the influence that comes with you being mine. That's pretty weighty. Like if we can get our head around that idea, that these seven I will statements of God are saying, in essence, I, I'm going to free you, I'm going to marry you, and I'm going to give you influence in the world. All of a sudden, that one of eight billion seems, seems bigger than that, right? It seems like, man, I have real influence. Like, I really am important. And we start to swing over to the other side. And then if you're reading through uh, Exodus 6, there's this real weird transition. And you get to what I'm sure is most of your favorite parts of the Bible, uh, the genealogies. Everybody loves the genealogies, right? I, I think like they're everybody's favorite. I, I say it tongue in cheek, but actually they are everybody's favorite because it's when you catch up on your Bible reading plan because you're like, oh, I'm just going to skip that. I'm not reading all that stuff, right? Like I know you do it. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so the genealogy comes, and it's this weird spot. Like, why in the world is the genealogy there? Like, God just made this incredible statement to Moses. I will do all these things. I, I will rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm proposing to you. I'm establishing you. I'm giving you a place. I'm giving you cultural influence. And here's the way the, um, the line uh, unfolded. This is the way it goes. Like, what in the world's God doing? Like, we look at genealogies, and we think, like, Ancestry.com. We think like, um, I'm going to look back and I'm going to find like who I'm related to that's famous so I can have like a little claim to fame, right? Like, I know you said that to me, but you don't know that I'm royalty, right? Like, I'm actually really important. You just don't know. Like, that's the way we see, we, we see genealogies. But genealogies in the Bible are always there for a purpose. There, there's always a reason the writer is writing that genealogy. There's always different reasons. There's all kinds of different reasons why genealogies exist. We don't have time to go through all of these, but I want to show you in one verse why this genealogy is here. So go down to verse 20 of Exodus chapter 6. It says this, Amran took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Now, I, I don't know if you're able to real quickly in your head kind of sketch out what that family tree looks like. But, but what he just said is, Moses and Aaron's mom is also their aunt. Now look, my wife's family's from West Virginia, and <laughs> that's weird for them, right? Like, that's like, that's over the top. Like, are you... I, I, was, uh, I was emailing, uh, Kurt and I were emailing this week about this verse because it's such a, such a strange thing. And I said to him, what do you, what do you think they call, what, what, do they, what do they call her? And he was like, I don't know, auntie mom or mommy aunt. I'm not, I'm not sure which way it goes, right? Like, it's like, this is weird, right? Why is this genealogy here? Because it's, it's an incredible reminder that you are messed up. 
just like Moses and Aaron are messed up. In fact, if you go down uh, to to verse 26, it, it literally says this. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. These are the ones. Can you believe it? Like, it's like the, the writer is saying, like, like, these really messed up people, these are the people God used. Can you believe that he would use these people? This is us. So as we, as we start to fill up with this significance, as we start to fill up with this sense of like, wow, I'm amazing. God loves me and he's redeeming me and he's marrying me and he's establishing me. And he then reminds you, and you are so messed up. Like you are so broken. You are so in need of grace. And both of those things can be true at the same time. In fact, I would argue they have to be true at the same time. Look at the first verse of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, that's a strange statement, but I want to encourage you, challenge you, that that's true for each one of us. That this week, you will come into contact with likely dozens of people to whom you are like God. Now, I don't mean that you're elevated to the holiness of God. I don't mean you have all the power of God. I don't mean that you fully and perfectly are God to them. But what I mean is for dozens of people who come in contact with you, you are the closest to God that they're going to experience. You are like God to them. And you may say, but I am like broken and messed up and I'm going to do it all wrong. And I would say to you, yeah, that's true. But Moses is calling his mom aunt. So like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Like in the midst of all of this stuff, like God's going to use you too. The invitation of God is that he will redeem his people and he will free us. That, that he will invite us into relationship with him, intimacy with him, connection with him. He will establish us, and in the midst of our brokenness, he will use us right where we are. Paul, talking to a kind of a group of amateur philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, makes, makes this statement. He says, God has determined the times and the places of your existence. Like, he's put you where you are, when you are, on purpose, and Paul says it this way. He did that because there are going to be people around you who are like reaching out and they're seeking God, but they don't know where to find him. And they're going to find that he's not too far from any of them. Do you know why? Because you're there. Because you are like God to them. The bottom line is this. You are not as insignificant as you feel or as great as you think you are. Because it's not about you at all. And it's never been about you. This is a story about God and his beauty and his transcendence and his plan and his grace and his mercy. And you and I got invited into the middle of it. And you and I get to represent him to the world around us. And so you're invited into that story. He says, not only do you get freedom, you get me. And you get to represent me to the world. But the last thing I want to show you is this. If you go back in Exodus 6, in verse 9, it says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses 
because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. And while that's a rough judgment on the people of Israel, I think it can be a great comfort to us as the people of God, because what it's saying is this, God gets it. He sees how hard it is. He sees the weight of sin. And he gets that your response is not always immediate. He gets that your yes to him will sometimes be a whisper and it'll take a little while. He gets it. Like, here's the thing. God has proposed to you. God has got down, as it were, in front of us and said, will you marry me? And he gets the fact that there's a whole bunch of us that don't immediately jump up and down and say yes. It's like that awkward proposal in the restaurant next to you, right? Where it's like, um, I'm not sure yet, right? Like he gets it. He knows that, that for us, in the midst of a broken spirit and the weight of slavery, that that response can be difficult. But the offer still stands. On May 2nd, 1997, I asked Amanda to marry me. Now, in a fascinating turn of events, on the way to the place that we were going to, uh, I was going to propose to her, she said to me on the way there, this is great, I'm so glad we're going out today, uh, do not ask me to marry you. <laughs> well, that's a rough way to start, isn't it? <laughs> And, and see, here's the thing. There was so much going on in her life at the time. Her dad was sick. She was, we were getting ready to graduate. She didn't know where she was going. There were all kinds of things happening. And it wasn't that she at all doubted my commitment and my love for her or that she had any doubt of her commitment and her love for me. It was that there was so, so much happening right, now, right then. It was like, I, I just don't know if I, can, if I can respond to one other thing. Like, there's just too much. I had never listened well, so I... Uh, did ask her, and she did ultimately say yes. And, and, but, but if she would have said, I told you not to ask me, you need to wait, would the offer have still stood? Absolutely. Absolutely. It would have stood a week from then, it would have stood a month from then, it would have stood a year from then. And that's true for God to us. He gets the weight of it. And for a lot of you, you, you may have said yes to the not yet of the kingdom. You may have said yes to the, like, I don't want to be in hell, so therefore I want to be in heaven. And so I prayed a prayer, and I wrote the date down in the front of my Bible, and I stamped it, I'm good. And I would simply say that when I asked Amanda to marry me and she said yes, we were talking about a whole life weaving together. Not just a little section of our life, all of us. And so I think the invitation for us have you said that kind of a yes to God? I'm not talking about whether you have prayed a prayer, but I'm talking about have you said yes to the totality of your life being his? Every detail. When he proposes and we respond, what he's saying is, I, I want to influence and make significant every single portion, not because you're great, but because I am. I want to use you in found ways in the world around you, not just in the moments that you choose on Sunday mornings and on, uh, uh, on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights or whatever the thing is. I want to use you all the time in a profound way. And so the invitation I have for us today, I think the scripture has for us today, is to ask that question, have we said yes to him completely, fully? 
And so I'm going to ask us as we respond, the worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a response. And as they do, I just want to ask you to take a minute of quiet and just listen. Listen as the Spirit comes to us and lovingly says, will you marry me? Will you be mine? And I want you to think through your response. Because I think for many of us, we've never gotten to that place where it's a complete yes to everything in life. It's a yes to a section. You can have the religious part of me. What about the rest? There's an invitation in that he's making for us. And so I'm just going to ask you to um, if you put your Bibles to the side and just, uh, just close your eyes. And let's pray. Let's just start with a, a, a time of quiet. And let's allow the Spirit to speak to us. Lord Jesus, the invitation that you've given to us seems too good to be true, that you would invite us all in our brokenness and our insignificance and our inability. You would use us. So God, for those of us who are here and we've, we've said yes to eternity with you, but we've really struggled to engage the, the, the right now of the kingdom. Would you give us the grace to step in fully? That may happen right in this moment or that may happen a couple hours from now or that may happen a couple days from now or weeks from now, but I, I know that that invitation is open and you're inviting us in. So God, would you give us the grace to, to step in in the midst of broken spirits and heavy burdens of slavery to respond to the one who desires to free us, to marry us, to give us significance. And God, for some of us, we have at one point in time said yes completely, all in, we're, we're there. But like an old married couple, we've kind of started to do our own separate things. And sections of our life have started to be walled off from you. So God, if that's where we are this morning, would you meet us there? And would you remind us of how much you love us? How much you desire to use us? And may this be a moment where we renew our vows, as it were, where we step back in once again to the fullness of relationship. And God, there's still others of us maybe who, have, who are right there. We're all in. We are, uh, we're, we're ready to go. But we're not sure that we're ready to be like God to our neighbor, to our coworker, to our boss, to our family members, to our friends. It just feels like too big of a jump. We feel so broken, so inadequate. So God, would you in your love and grace remind us that this has never been about us, that this is your work in us. And so fill us up, not with us, 
not with self-esteem or with a, a good sense of, of what we can do, but rather with you, with your spirit, a deep sense of how you are working in us. And so do this, Jesus, we pray, for your glory and for our deep joy in your name. Amen.